This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Craig Kopp, reporting that a bill to make everything available to read in elementary schools open for public scrutiny faced its last Senate committee hearing. Let us not swat a fly with a sledgehammer. Sledgehammer beat fly swatter as the Senate Rules Committee sent the bill to the Senate floor. On the floor of the Senate today, the 15-week abortion ban will be up for a vote. Pro-choice groups will rally against it at the Capitol. I don't know that it'll be able to be stopped in the Senate, quite honestly. We will be calling on the governor to veto the legislation. Sunrise talks with the executive director of the Florida Alliance of Planned Parenthood affiliates. And a woman convicted of murdering a Florida lottery winner is backing legislation aimed at protecting Florida lottery winners. I had no clue what maybe she was going to say, and she's completely in favor of it. A student journalist at Florida State digs up the session's most unusual wave in favor of a bill to keep lottery winners' identities private. But first, a bill proponents say makes elementary schools' instructional materials more transparent, and which opponents say is an open door to book banning, is headed for the full Senate floor. The bill, which also calls for 12-year term limits for school board members, advanced through the Senate Rules Committee. The bill requires all materials in use to be cataloged on a searchable list for online review. Also, school districts would have to provide a public review process for the adoption of all materials as a separate line item on a board meeting agenda with reasonable opportunity for public comment. It also requires elementary schools to hire a media specialist to curate educational materials and library books. School districts would also be required to report what materials and books receive public objections to the State Department of Education. Nancy Lothar of the Florida PTA said the bill hasn't even been passed yet, and it's already having an effect at a school near where she lives. That school's very active PTA earlier this year purchased a thousand books to replace worn copies of books in the school's media center. Those books, by and large, are still sitting in their delivery crates. Why? An administrator somewhere up the chain has heard about this bill and is extremely concerned about cataloging these books and putting them on the shelves without the aid of a certified media specialist. That kind of public testimony made Democratic Senator Gary Farmer's point in opposing the bill. We've heard from almost every aspect of the education process, teachers, librarians, parents, and even clergy have all stood up united in their opposition to this bill. I think that tells us something. I think that tells us that maybe we need to go back to the drawing board on this and that this piece of legislation maybe isn't as well thought out as as we would otherwise like. And then when it comes to this this book destruction uh, and censorship, um, it's just, I mean, I cannot, the, the ironies in my head are just churning over and over. Uh, uh, folks who decry in elections people that are socialists or from totalitarian countries are now engaging in totalitarian actions in determining what our teachers get to teach our children. 
and what books are going to be made available for those children to read. Democratic Senator Bobby Powell, who has spent some time in front of a classroom, said the whole idea is anti-education. As I grew up, I don't believe there were any teachers who would intentionally put books in front of students that would harm us. And we continue to harpen on this idea of freedom while continuing to limit free choice here in the state of Florida. I don't get it. It's like an oxymoron. I say free, but the only way you get to be free is if you're really, really dumb, right? And that's what continues to happen in terms of this type of process. (laughs) Mark Twain once said that a man who has good books and chooses not to read them is in no better position than the man who cannot read them. By limiting the opportunities for children to learn and grow, we're stifling development. But the bill's sponsor, Republican Joe Gruters, maintains the bill is just intended to make sure parents know everything about what's available to kids in schools. This bill is all about transparency. This is not about banning books. And if we care about selecting instructional materials, and we currently have a rigorous set of rules for the selection and adoption of instructional materials, then shouldn't we also care about library books or or school reading lists that are put in front of our children? This bill simply ensures that some of those rules we have in place for instructional materials are in place for all materials. Currently, some school districts are already doing this. And I would consider this some of the best practices uh, that have been identified and thus applying it across the statewide uh, application and use. The Rules Committee was the bill's last stop before the full Senate, and that is where it's headed. On the floor of the Senate today, there will be a vote on the 15-week abortion ban. Before the Senate session, groups like Planned Parenthood and others will gather at the Capitol for a press event. The executive director of the Florida Alliance of Planned Parenthood Affiliates, Laura Goodhue, tells Sunrise it's not that they think they're going to change today's vote. I don't know that it'll be able to be stopped in the Senate, quite honestly. We will be calling on the governor to veto the legislation, but we want to let people know what the impact of this is and to hold uh, their elected officials accountable for passing this dangerous abortion ban. What makes it so dangerous? So this takes away the freedom of pregnant people to make decisions for themselves uh, in consultation with their doctors. You know, um, people have had a right to reproductive health care and abortion in particular for 49 years since Roe v. Wade. But this is really under attack in Texas. They have really not had meaningful access to abortion care for the past six months. The U.S. Supreme Court will be hearing a case out of Mississippi that also bans abortion in 15 weeks. And really what's at stake is um, access to safe and legal abortion and Roe v. Wade being um, upheld as, as, as affirming a person's bodily autonomy and constitutional right to an abortion. Watching this go through the state legislature, there has been some just intense testimony about this. People are kind of bearing their souls and their personal lives. Yes. Um, it's it's really been something to watch. Uh, it, 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 is it because it's such a personal thing? I think so. You know, uh, per, decisions about a person's health care are personal, period. And I think decisions about an abortion are deeply personal and they should remain so, right? They should be private decisions that an individual can make, you know, with their spouse, with their family in consultation, you know, with their faith. Um, but these should not be decisions that they need to ask their um, 
their legislator about. And I think that's why emotions are so high, because this is really an affront of our freedoms and an empowerment of pregnant people to make these decisions for themselves, which can often, which are, are deeply personal um, and can of, often be complex. Um, there are no exceptions really for anybody in this law. Um, not that they're, you know, everybody has a, should have a right to an abortion, but they would not accept any amendments for rape or incest human trafficking um so or even you know people who don't find out uh, who have a very wanted pregnancy who may not find out that there's something wrong with the pregnancy until after 15 weeks and then they have to make that difficult decision so every pregnancy is different um, and that's why these decisions should be handled by doctors who are trained to take care of their patients, you know, along, along with their patients making those decisions and not elected officials. So I think that's why passions are so high and, and rightly so, you know, we had um, doctors from Planned Parenthood testify about 11 year olds who were raped and, you know, were not able to get to the doctor until much later. Um, and that would not be able to have access to an abortion under this law. Um, and, and, you know, these exceptions weren't even accepted as amendments either. So we're awaiting the Supreme Court ruling on the Mississippi law. So I assume that when and if this gets through the legislature and when and if the governor of the state of Florida, who has said he would sign it, but you you don't know until it happens, I would assume that no legal action against this would occur until, I guess, the, the, the shoe drops in the Supreme Court? Well, you know, just like the... Similar to the U.S. Supreme Court, Florida's state Supreme Court has also been packed with anti-choice justices, just like the Trump administration appointed Justice uh, Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, Governor Ron DeSantis has been able to appoint conservative justices. So um, this law could be challenged in state court, but there's some concerns there that it may not be um, upheld in state Supreme Court either. What is... Planned Parenthood's read at this point about the future of Roe v. Wade? So Planned Parenthood will always be there for our patients. You know, Planned Parenthood is in Texas right now, um, <laughs> working overtime to really as, as a crisis provider at this point. Um, and we will be. We've been around for over 100 years. So we'll continue to serve our patients um, with the full range of reproductive health care, including you know, contraception, testing and treatment for sexually transmitted Ill- illnesses, cancer screenings and abortion care. Um, where we can. So we will look at all options uh, to protect our patients, even if that means a legal remedy. So um, that's really the answer. We're going to be there to provide the, you know, the sexual health information, prevention, education, and direct services as long as we possibly can. There was a uh, legislator who very passionately made a point during one of the hearings on this bill, and he said that it's not going to work. Abortions will continue, but certainly not in any way that we've known for all the years since Roe v. Wade. Yeah, I think that's what's really sad. And people have stories about, you know, abortions that occurred before it was constitutional under Roe v. Wade, really horror stories of, you know, people that had to take extreme measures, take it, take, you know, try to self-induce abortions. We're seeing that in Texas now. Um, But the reality is that people who can afford to travel to a different state, a different country, take off time from their, you know, being a student or or working will always have access to abortion. Um, The legislature 
legislators that are voting yes on this bill will always have access to abortion. And many of them told stories of themselves or their loved ones who have had abortions, who had that choice. And they're the ones that are still, even even once they make it illegal, you know, in certain areas, they'll still be able to access it. And that's what's really heartbreaking is that people who have been traditionally left out of the healthcare system, they're uninsured or they can't, they live in a rural area. They're a young person who, you know, can't even get a ride to the doctor or they're, um, you know, uh, systemic racism in healthcare system against black and Latino people, as well as LGBTQ people might make it harder for them to access care in a timely manner. And that's who is really going to suffer under um, these abortion bans. Doesn't polling indicate that in in general, uh, Florida's population and the population of the United States in general are in favor of safe and legal abortion? Or do I have that wrong? No, that's true. Um, I mean, there's the many studies, but, you know, I've seen the latest in Florida that over 60 percent support access to safe and legal abortion. One of the reasons is because um, abortion is common. One in four women will have had an abortion in her lifetime. So the stigma that, you know, people are placing on the procedure itself is really um, judgmental to the uh, to those people that have had an abortion. So it is popular. Um, it is unpopular to restrict it and to make it harder for people to access care. And so what we're seeing is a small minority, again, dictating policy in, in Florida and uh, some extremist politicians just playing to their that, those small um, minority of their base. So once again, this morning's demonstration in the Capitol Rotunda, you don't expect it to change the outcome when the Senate votes on this 15-week abortion ban. So its purpose is? We want people to be aware. We have two patients that are speaking who have had to make difficult decisions about accessing abortion. We want to make sure that we're telling most personal stories so that the senators, as they do go into session, can keep that in mind. Um, we think it's very important that we're putting patients and people who have had abortions front and center in this discussion, as well as just educating the broader public about what their elected officials are voting on in Tallahassee, um, you know, in this in this corner of the state while they go about their daily lives and how their rights are in jeopardy. And that's really the, the main purpose of the press conference. Laura Goodhue, Executive Director of the Florida Alliance of Planned Parenthood Affiliates. Thank you so much for your time. Of course. Thank you. Here's some of what's happening in Florida politics today. As we said, the Florida Senate is scheduled to hold a floor session this morning, and abortion advocates, patients, and providers will convene with legislators at the Florida Capitol ahead of the state Senate's anticipated vote on HB5 that would ban abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. Speakers at the press conference will include Democratic Senator Annette Tadeo, Democratic State Representative Anna Escamani, abortion providers from Planned Parenthood of Southeast and North Florida, and more. The Florida House is scheduled to hold a floor session this morning, too. Fifteen minutes after the Senate floor session, the Senate Special Order Calendar Group will set a special order calendar which will list bills to be heard on the Senate floor. Also, the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission will begin a two-day Tampa meeting with an overview of Deepwater Horizon oil spill restoration activities. It will also consider a proposal that would expand the daily hours for the next alligator hunting season. The Florida Commission on Offender Review will meet. The State Reemployment Assistant Appeals Commission will meet, too. 
Democratic gubernatorial candidate and U.S. Senator Charlie Crist will talk about health care issues during an online event this evening held by Florida Voices for Health. And finally, both the Florida House and Senate have approved legislation that will keep the names of big lottery winners confidential for 90 days after their big wins. The idea is to keep the winners safe from being hit up by everybody they know and don't know and murder. Well, yeah, actually, that's happened in a number of states, including Florida. And a University of Florida student journalist, Isabella Leandri, discovered that somebody serving time for a lottery winner killing is a big backer of this confidentiality legislation. Leandri's story breaks this morning on FreshTakeFlorida.com. Sunrise talked with Leandri about how she broke the story. Well, so I originally just started my story kind of um, following this bill. I came across it and thought it was really interesting because, you know, I personally had never thought, well, maybe like winners of the lottery having their name out there, it could be dangerous for them because they win large amounts of money. People may want loans, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I just started writing the story about the bill. And my professor told me, hey, you should look into writing to Doris Moore. So I did. And she ended up writing back to me. And I had a whole interview with her. It was very interesting. And she's actually in favor of the bill. So explain who she is and why you're writing back and forth because she is in prison. Yes. So Doris Moore was convicted in 2012 of first-degree murder in the shooting death of Abraham Shakespeare. He was a lottery winner. And, yes, so she's in prison right now. So I just wanted to hear, you know, she's in prison for murder of a lottery winner. So I want to say, you know, maybe what are her thoughts on this bill? I had no clue what maybe she was going to say. And she's completely in favor of it. She actually thinks that lottery winners need more protection and more time to kind of not have their name out there and get their life in order. Explain that to me uh, more time. Your article, you've done some research and there are other states that withhold information about lottery winners for longer periods of time. And some, I think, don't even reveal them at all. Yes. So the bill would basically just keep secret the names of these lottery winners. And it's only for winners of $250,000 or more. And their name would only be um, exempt from public records for 90 days. So when I spoke to Doris, she actually, she mentioned that maybe uh, the law should go further and keep their names secret for six months and that, we should not even disclose whether these winners um, chose to get the lump sum or to receive payouts from the government because she mentioned that those who receive those lump sums and get their cash all at once may become a bigger target for, you know, like blackmail, even, you know, being possibly being killed. So let's go back to Doris a little bit here. Uh, mm-hmm. Doris is in is is in jail because she was convicted of first degree murder of a guy named Abraham Shakespeare. Yes. She says she's innocent that she didn't kill him. Yes. 
but she is still professing her innocence. But does she admit that she hooked up with him because he was a lottery winner and she was after his money and did she get it? Well, she told me that she, when she met um, Shakespeare, he only had one million left and he had loaned a lot of his money out. So. He was a thirty million dollar winner, I think, something like that, and he. Had, yes, it was thirty million. Mm-hmm. Um, and but when he met him, he only had one million left, which is what she told me. And did she get that money? Um, I do not believe so, um, but I do think she. The, in the case, the prosecutor said that she withdrew one million from his account and spent it on like cars and vacations. But she doesn't. She doesn't admit to that. She doesn't admit no, to. No, she did not. When I spoke to her, it it was she was professing her innocence, and then mainly talking about her opinions on the bill. So she says she did not do this to uh, Mr. Shakespeare. Yes, but she sees that there's a problem that that could be addressed by this bill. She's in favor of it. Yes. <laughs> What were those conversations like? Well, it was very interesting. I honestly, I did not know what to expect um, from her, but, you know, she seemed very sympathetic with these lottery winners. You know, she even mentions that um, our Florida schools should be doing more to teach like high schoolers about finances and how to open checking accounts. So she seemed to know a lot about like the finance financial sides of everything but yeah she really is just in favor of the bill which i quite honestly i was not expecting i don't know but she's in favor of it she just she wants even more protection for these lottery winners which i thought was very interesting do you think she's doing this to uh because she's apparently she's done a couple of appeals she's lost them but Mm -hmm. she's going to continue to appeal Uh, yeah um do you think she's just doing this for i don't know public relations or that she really is sympathetic to the plight of these lottery winners honestly i don't know it does i mean considering she is trying to appeal it could be maybe just for public relations but when i spoke with her it did she had a lot to say about it and she really did seem sympathetic with them because she had all of like, you know, she talks about the education, you know, we need more time. And then she spoke with me about how lottery winners should open two checking accounts and not give out lots of loans. So she did seem to have some sort of sympathy for these people. And she certainly, you know, is, is close to the issue. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so when did you talk to her? How long ago was it? I spoke with her on, um, last Thursday. Mm-hmm. No kidding. Was she surprised to get a, a call from you uh, about this and, uh, this bill and, uh, the well, fact that- um, we had been emailing back and forth, um, and she seemed a bit, like she was very open to speaking with me about it, which I, I don't, I didn't re- I thought maybe she wouldn't even respond. So she was. Honestly, she was pretty eager to speak with me about it. Quite an experience. Now, what are you? Mm-hmm. Wh- where are you at in college at this point? Yes, I'm a junior. You're a junior. Quite the story. Yes. 
you've already said you were surprised to uh, uh, talk to her and then have her back uh, this legislation. Uh, it pretty much passed almost unanimously through the yeah. House and the Senate, and the governor says mm-hmm. he's going to sign it. But uh, it's so odd to have somebody from prison convicted of exactly what this law is supposed to protect say, yeah, I think there should be a law. Mm-hmm. It's pretty crazy. Isabella Leandri, I, I appreciate your time today. Congratulations on the story. It's a real winner. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. That's it for today's edition of Sunrise. I'm Craig Kopp. Join us again tomorrow as we do another daily dive into Florida politics.